listening to Lady Radio, the hottest show this side of Dizzo. Greetings and welcome to episode 3 of Lave Radio, the show that covers the universe of Elite and the development of the computer game Elite Dangerous. I'm your host, Fozza Forrester, and joining me in the Sidewinder tonight for a celebratory glass of Altarian Hooch, we have the greatest Whovian Games Master of all time, Chris Jarvis. Hello. The ever-so-triumphant and now official Lavian historian, Alan Stroud. Thank you, and good evening. And finally, our boyo in the broom closet, John Stabler. Good morning. Okay, so what have people been up to this week? Uh, John, start us off. What have you been up to, mate? Um, well, unfortunately, I haven't been accosted by women in the supermarket because um, I'm up in Manchester on a training course. It's been quite quiet. Um, I'm actually in the smallest hotel room that could possibly ever exist, aside from maybe one of those Japanese ones. Have you seen those Japanese hotels where you just climb a little stepladder and get into a bunk bed? It's basically a cube. Yeah, that's the only way it could get any smaller. Are you in training, as it were, to pilot a Viper Mark II? Is that what's going on here? (laughs) That's exactly what's happening. And does that mean you're living in in fluid inside this room? Is it some sort of, you know, uh, inertial compensating fluid that you swim in to talk to us? I don't think you can ask him that. That that seems personal. I was going to say, if you're talking to talk about fluids in his hotel room, I think we just need to leave that well alone. (laughs) Yes, yes, we do. Um, What's happened is um, this room has a very high ceiling, and so the acoustics is appalling. So I've had to actually flip my mattress, throw my duvet over some of the furnishing just to get a decent voice. So my ass is actually quite numb at the moment because I'm sat on a <laughs> rock-hard bed. So the quicker we can get this wrapped up, the better, to be honest. You made a kid's fort, didn't you, in your I, room? <laughs> I did try that, yeah. I wanted to, but I, I got really hot very quickly. So um, I, I decided to just, you know, just go with wall coverings rather than the ceiling. Fair enough. Okay, well, leaving the broom, uh, broom closet well alone then. Uh, Chris, what have you been up to, mate? Uh, I've been doing odd, odd bits of writing here and there, writing scripts, writing game write-up. It's been a week of writing. It's been fun. And uh, Alan, I'd say we've all got a, a celebratory glass here. Do you want to let us know how your week's been going? Uh, it's been emotional. Um, very emotional. The uh, the whole ride of doing the Kickstarter is just, it's just an incredible experience. And the fact that we got to over the line to funding yesterday was absolutely amazing. So yeah, no, I, I've been going around and trying to promote it in different audiences. So you know, talking to people at uh, at work and going through some of the work digest emails and what have you, and also talking to other groups. So some of the students who might be involved in the piece, speaking to a potential director. Uh, really busy week. I finished the the corporations guide. Went in. Yeah, I think I was talking about it last time. I, I've done a revision to that slightly, and still working on the covert ops stuff for Frontier. So um, yeah, very busy week. Excellent, mate. Well, I mean, it's absolutely fantastic news that Labour Revolution is, uh, has passed its funding targets. So we know at the very least the book will get made. So the history of Lave and the whole revolution story is definitely going to be written. Uh, but now it's all that's left is for us to push on and try and make sure that we get the short film funded as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I can only thank everybody that's pledged and, and everyone that supported me, even just by sharing the link, you know, encouraging their own Facebook friends or anything else. It, yeah, every little helps. Every little bit that anybody does is, you know, is really gratefully received. And it is essentially it's a dream for me because, you know, I'm, I'm getting to write for a, such a larger audience than I'd ever write before before. So, you know, incredible, incredible experience. I was going to say, Foz, 
what have you been up to? <laughs> oh dear, my week's actually been a bit of a, a bit of an odd week actually. Uh, on the work front, things have been a little odd to be honest. Like probably quite a few people who listen to the podcast, uh, I've had the joy of going through uh, some what are they called efficiency drives at work, and there's been quite a few sort of uncertainties and uh, and redundancies. Uh, thankfully, I've managed to dodge the redundancy bullet, but uh, my whole territory has been changed. But every cloud has a silver lining. My territory, even though I live in Nottingham, uh, now consists of Norwich, which is going to be a fun drive, but most importantly, Cambridge. So uh, I will actually, on my day-to-day job, get to drive past Frontier Development. So as I say, every cloud has a silver lining. Yeah, no, it sounds, sounds really good. Um, I guess then you've, you've had no time to do any writing. <laughs> no, I must admit, my, uh, <laughs> oh, my, my mashup, you know, the, the genius that comes from my pen, my mashup writing has, uh, has had to take a, a bit of a back seat this week. So uh, no, no more Darth Maul in a Cobra chasing <sighs> Starbuck across the universe. Unfortunately, I know everybody's going to be gutted to hear that, but uh, maybe we can just park that and go straight on to the news section. Uh-huh. Direct. Yeah, I wanted to give you a chance really to talk about your passion and your great story. I, I'm interested to hear more about it because obviously I've... <laughs> I've only critted a certain amount from you, so yeah. yeah. And now the news. <laughs> <laughs> you do know that the listeners have seen the excerpt that you published on your profile, don't you? The what now? <laughs> the excerpt from your Darth Maul mashup novel that you published on your profile on Lave Radio's website. Which really? hundreds of people have been reading this week. Yeah, and, and I mean, they've even started to, to quote some of the lines in the feedback that they've given us on the Lave Radio thread. I'm stunned. Did you not know that, that everyone is really, really interested in your book? I, Genuinely I, I, wondering where this is going. Well, I, I was assuming you were opening a, another tab in your browser to go to the Lave Radio <laughs> website. <laughs> Would you like me to quote you the email that you sent me when I did the crit for you? Would that be would that be helpful for you? Oh no. Dear Alan, you mentioned on our first Skype call that you are a writer. I've always wanted to write and get a novel published and wondered if you could give me some pointers. I'm pretty sure my ideas and style is unique enough for a publisher to want to read more, but I could do with another pair of eyes to look over this before I send it out. I've sat on it for a while, but in light of everything that's going on in the movies and TV at the moment, I was thinking of sending this straight to J.J. Abrahams. Here's a small bit. If you like it, I have the whole book and can send more over when you've time to critique it. You decided then to post your excerpt on your profile. Which I thought was very brave. It was a very brave thing to do. I can understand why you would think it was brave. So I guess we should get on with the podcast then, Foz. Um, we could talk about your stuff a little bit later, if you like. <laughs> oh, dear. All right. So in the news this week, we've got, uh, obviously, we've already spoken about your Kickstarter being funded, Alan. But uh, another Kickstarter that made it across the line was indeed Elite Encounters, the wonderful role-playing game by Dave Hughes. Final total for Dave's Kickstarter was £7,118 which gets him a stretch goal of limited uh, illustrations within the book. So uh, congratulations to Dave. I really look forward to, uh, to seeing it when it comes out. Uh, I know I backed it. I was desperate to get my hands on some of the dice. The role-playing dice with uh, the Elite logo on, I think, are going to look fantastic. What about everybody else? Did anybody else back it? I did, yes. Uh, I'm looking forward to some dice. 
Uh, I've never been so excited before. But when I saw some dice with the Elite logo on, I thought, I need to get me some of them. So I pledged at that level. Um, and I'm looking forward to what is probably going to be my first role-playing game. I d- does Hero Quest count as a role-playing game? No, it's a board game. I think I'd like to think it does, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of think it does. I mean, you know, I've I, I played quite a few, and I think Hero Quest counts. Certainly Advanced Hero Quest counts, but I guess you're... You know, you, you probably only played Hero Quest, but yeah, no, I think okay. it counts. Okay. With Dave's stuff, I have to say, you know, it is going to be really, really cool. And the great thing is, of course, is that a role playing game lends itself to the fact that you can kind of explore the universe a little bit more. So he's going to be able to put a few things in there that'll give nice sort of source information about different places and different planets and systems. Um, so yeah, so anybody that's looking at trying to get like as much immersed information about the Elite and Frontier universe that will come out with Elite Dangerous, getting the role-playing book is a big percentage towards going that way. So, so yeah, no, tremendous for him. Good stuff. Also this week, we had the first fiction dev diary from Michael Brooks, who I have to say does not look like I imagined him whatsoever. He's just, he's so big and blonde. He reminds me of the, uh, the Russian out of Rocky IV. So you mean Dolph Lundgren? Was he the, uh, the Russian out of Rocky IV? Yes, he was. Yes, that's uh, that's exactly who he reminded me of. Well, you know, I'm sure he'll take that. Dolph Lundgren's had a very successful career. Obviously, a few turkeys. The original Punisher was not a great <laughs> film for him, but I, I, I do think that Michael had certainly take that. Isn't he in the latest Expendables as well? Yeah, he is. He was in the first one too. I'm pretty sure he. I haven't got I've around to seeing him, so yeah. Yeah, I've not seen the second one, but I, yeah, he, he was in the first one. So yeah, no, he's he's done a few things and sort of made a bit of a comeback with that whole '80s action hero comeback that the Expendables gives, I guess. Well, I didn't think he was going to end up walking the boards in <laughs> Stratford upon Avon, to be honest. Well, you know, I, I'm sure Michael loves the fact that you're comparing him to an '80s action hero. I think that would, that would work really well. <laughs> I wonder well, if we can get him to. I wonder if when we do his interview, we can get him to say, "I must break you." Um, <laughs> I that, would work. that would be brilliant. So I'm sure that when John lines up to do his interview, he will have a, a similar altercation. Uh, I'm sure things will will go fantastically well. I hope John's got his boxing gloves. Uh, yeah, is he going to hit me? Oh, I'm definitely doing it over <laughs> Skype. Then there's no way I'm going to go down to Cambridge. I'm joking. Michael is the sweetest guy ever. I think you'll be absolutely fine. Just don't let him give you that stare that happens at about seven. All oh, that scary stare. In. Yeah, absolutely. What was up with that? But anyway, yeah, so what Michael gave us was an insight into the human factions within the elite universe. Obviously, we know there's going to be three main human factions, the Empire, the Federation, and the Alliance of Independent Systems. Now, we're going to go through some of the stuff that Michael covered, but we're just going to bring in our first bit of listener questionings that we had from last week, which kind of ties into the fiction. Uh, this is a question that came from Exaga. I'd like to know your thoughts on whether the Alliance, Federation, and Empire, and Independence worship the same deity or divinity. Uh, what do you guys think of the different factions having some form of God-centered philosophy to drive them? So obviously we're, we're quite fortunate on this to have a bit of an insight from Alan. So as we go through the various different factions, what we'll do is we'll maybe bring in that question into some of the uh, information that we get out. So starting with the Empire, what Michael told us was the Empire resembles Imperial Rome at the height of its power. The structure of the Empire, obviously you've got the Emperor who's going to sit at the top, or his or her word is law. After the Emperor, you've got Senators who look after planets or maybe entire solar systems. Beneath the Senators, you've got Patrons who are the equivalent of Mayors, 
and they look after settlements or maybe a CEO of a big corporation. Underneath the patrons, you've got the clients who are important people like merchants, business owners, etc. Under the clients, you've got your regular Joe public, the citizens. Under the citizens, you have the citizens' children who have basically the right structure that they are born into, uh, but are also given rights by their parents. And sitting underneath the children are the slaves who are seen in the game as a status symbol. And also the slaves themselves do have rights and need to be well maintained and looked after. Uh, the culture of the empire is one of honor and flamboyant, so their dress sense is definitely flamboyant. Everything that the empire creates could be seen as a work of art. We've certainly seen that in the concept pictures of the battle fleet and the cruisers. They are things of beauty as much as a thing of power. What do people think of the information that was dripped out about the empire? I think that's really interesting, and it really kind of fires the imagination to imagine this kind of space empire that's sort of founded on principles of classic Rome. And it got me thinking about it with this listener question about the, the religion. I think with the empire specifically, what I'd personally like to see is almost like a return to the pantheon of gods that the Romans had. I think religion these days, and I think particularly in the West, is very dominated by sort of monotheism. Although that's obviously not true for everybody, but I think if we think about the big sort of religions, they are one god religions that we, that we see them in the West. And I think it would be really interesting to have this idea of going back to the Mormons having household gods. I like the idea of kind of pilots from the empire having little sort of carved figures of, you know, various different divinities that represent the spirits of the cargo they're carrying. And I don't think necessarily, I think it's probably more realistic that perhaps the people of the empire in elite world, because they are very kind of modern and everything is scientific, that perhaps their religion is kind of commoditized in a funny sort of way, that maybe they don't really believe in it in a sort of deep faith way, but that like when they have a party or an orgy, the excuse for it is my household God is the God of orgies. So I'm going to have an orgy because my God wants me to. Do you know what I mean? That... <laughs> not, okay. not that I want to be massively cynical about Roman religion, but that's what a lot of it boils down to. The, the station's entertainment manager obviously is particularly keen on uh, this particular type yeah. of, of entertainment, I would guess. you got work on your yeah. mind, haven't you? Okay. <laughs> I, I was going to say something kind of similar in that um, it could be a very interesting aspect and what you said about how does the fact that people are now in space all this technology is I, I don't think that's going to actually make any difference because even if religion as we knew it didn't exist and you said maybe it'd be great if we had polytheism back which I think is always a, a really interesting thing but even if it didn't exist as it did, you always have people that have little superstitions and things. I could imagine a pilot would kiss his lucky furry dice in his cockpit before setting off every time or something like that. But yeah, it would be nice to see some interesting religious aspects. And realistically, if you spend enough time travelling out between the stars in all that darkness on your own, it's going to leave people a lot of time to think. And I think this world of elite, you know, it's going to be a world of that's full of kind of philosophers and dreamers and uh, people that think about gods and eternity. But that's my view on it. No, that's absolutely great. And do you think the, the question about religion it might be one that we, we come back to after we've talked a little bit about the other, the other factions, but do you think it's one that sort of lends itself more to the empire than say the Federation or the Alliance? Or do you think they're all obviously coming from the same, you know, sort of human grounding. They're all going to have the same sort of backgrounds and beliefs. With the question from what we had in the email from Exaga, it was, would they all share a deity? Well, I, I think that's 
a bit absurd the concept of so many people spread across the galaxy all um, worshipping the same deity because they, they can't even manage it on our planet right now so I, I, that doesn't Fair fit point. with me I think it's probably a good idea at this stage that I give you a bit of an insight then really because if we're going to go through the factions it's probably a good idea to go through the process of how that faction document's developed and which bits and pieces we want to divulge and, and work through I'm just a concept writer. They gave me an idea and I ran with it. I put my draft back and then they took a look at it and they went through and they cut what they wanted out and they cut what they wanted in. And so the document as itself is very collaborative. The information that we have and, and from Michael is very collaboratively produced and then they've obviously they've taken the things that they want to take. I think it's better for that because it, it feels like it is a document that gets to the vision of, of the architect of of the game world and it also has the collaborations and the insights of of different people who have different strengths and abilities when i agreed to start concept writing the faction documents the first one i did was the empire document the brief i was given was to look at it as if it was rome and think about rome and start writing as if rome was the main influence to what was there so that was quite a good guide but there are lots of periods of rome and there's lots of ways in which people interpret rome as you know as an idea and actually what David Braben had in mind was very much the transactional politics of the early Roman Empire, which is where you have this whole strated system between senators and patricians and uh, the other classes. So actually the, the whole politics of the, the society and the whole societal structure is very much in, in the case of senators only have power because they're supported by the people beneath them and so on and so forth. So actually the, the status is almost two-way, which is really interesting. And I kind of had a particular image in mind, and that kind of wasn't it. I was looking at something that was much more linear in structure and probably looking quite painting a 21st century image of, uh, of Roman society. So I would guess David's probably a little better read than I am in, in this particular area. So when the submission went in, we looked through you know some of the details and came back in terms of the restructuring that he wanted. It's, it's much improved. My initial idea was much more top-down, whereas this has a really interesting multi-layered approach to what's there. Now, when we turn to the issue of religion, I'm afraid I'm going to disappoint you a little bit. The empire is secular. It is an entirely secular society. However, the dreamer space explorer idea is still very much present in elite and frontier, but it just doesn't fit with the empire. My understanding of Roman politics is uh, rudimentary at best, but how does one become emperor in in the empire? In in Rome, what happened is you had one person effectively command a mob of people towards. He, he basically became populist. Caesar became populist, and by using the the people who felt disenfranchised, he was able to use that to manoeuvre you know people in the Senate towards gaining more and more power. Now. That ultimately showed the weakness of a structure at that point in time and also the level of corruption within the structure. Certainly earlier in Rome, you had some very careful checks and balances at all levels. So you had the consuls and you had the tribunes and the senators themselves all had different spheres of influence and consuls certainly could only hold a term for a, a certain period of time. With regards to Elite Dangerous, a great deal of, of this societal detail we have conceptually, we have it worked and we understand where it is. Some of the questions in relation to who becomes emperor next, why and so forth, it's quite detailed and quite 
complicated to see how that sort of works out. I can tell you that we know who all the emperors were. We've mapped that. We have all that information. The actual process of how each one became emperor at each individual time is obviously going to be different depending on the situation. The idea really is to create a society that has a level of uniqueness to it. And we're always, all of us are going to view these things through the minds of our experience. We're going to look at these things with the knowledge that we have about different aspects of society that we already know about. But elite as a universe, it has a very a living society that you can place a, an experience perception on, but also that it's got something very unique to it. I had to really had to go back and read Livy again. The information that we have and, and from Michael is very collaboratively produced. I think it's better for that because it, it feels like it is a document that gets to the vision of um, of the architect of, of the game world and it also has the collaborations and the insights of uh, of different people who have different strengths and abilities. So you've got these structures for the different levels of people you know, in society and obviously not just the Empire but some of the other stuff. How does that impact on the player experience in the sense that is this just about creating a flavour for the pe- places that you visit or is this about saying that as a player, you might have the status of slave or you might have the status of, of console or, or whatever like that? I can only speculate just like you can in terms of how the implementation will occur. But I can tell you that rationally, you wouldn't create these kind of structures as part of the game if you didn't have some idea of how they were going to be implemented. So I think that's going to be really exciting. And you know, in the past... Elite and Frontier First Encounters and Frontier have all had ranking systems attached to some of the different factions. What I would like, and I, you know, I would guess that you know, this sort of leads of your question, is the ability to, to give players more and more of that transactional political power. But we're going to have to see how they manage to, you know, to model it, really. Great stuff. Well, let's uh, spend a lot of time talking about the Empire. Obviously, the Empire is... Uh, Possibly one that we're all leaning towards, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but moving on to the, the Federation. Now, the stuff we found out from Michael about the Federation, we found out it was the, the oldest of the three factions, dating back some 1,000 years. If you had to liken it to uh, modern-day structure, it's got a similar political structure to the current United States of America. Their dress code is is elegant but functional, far less flamboyant than the Empire. They're a culture which is very reliant on technology, and they're a society of extremes. So on the one hand, you have the very, very rich citizens, and you can also have the very, very poor citizens. Corporations have far more power, being able to instruct their employees, for example, on which way to vote in local elections. And the Federation is made up of of countries, planets, and entire systems. Now, Alan, that was one of the questions I was going to ask you. One of the things that Michael said was it is made up of countries, planets, and entire systems. Now, does it really go down to such a small level that the Federation is actually made up of individual countries or are they doing it on a slightly sort of more macro scale than that and it's planets and systems only? Um, depends on the system, really. Uh, you've got different influences in, in different places. So we're kind of looking at the way in which some of uh, you know, the, the existing systems and, and the new systems that are going to be included will um, fit into you know, the universe, as it were, um, and into the, the Federation's faction area. It's really all about, you know, the fact that they're the oldest is kind of is well known. That's, you know, documentation from Frontier and, and further on. But the detail and the interesting stuff about the byplay, the political byplay that is going on inside the Federation is the important thing. And that's where the countries, the planets, 
you know, and the different power bases are interesting um, because the Federation really is about this very strong agenda-based politics. So you have corporations with their influence and you have instructional voting. There's an awful lot going on all the time to try and accrue power and to implement power and to affect things. But of course, because everybody's trying to do it, everybody's blocking everybody else. So it really interesting in, in that sort of conceptual light. Where it gets implemented with regards to, you know, sections of planets is going to be the challenge of, of the game design, really. I don't know how much they're going to be able to realise that, but we'll have to see. Okay, and from the uh, the earlier question, what's the religious status of the Federation? Are we thinking that this is also secular, or is there wiggle room? Uh, there's No, I, I don't think the Federation's going to be secular. I think that we're looking at quite a profusion of religion. That certainly fits in with previous journal notations in Frontier First Encounters. And I can tell you that we have looked at all of the religions that have previously been mentioned in previous documentation. So if you go all the way back to the Dark Wheel, you've got Randomus Factoria. We've looked at Randomus Factoria. What's interesting is actually Chris mentioned the idea of people in space having their, their sort of good luck charms and everything else. That's quite similar to one of the ideas that we've we've sort of started looking at to sort of colour up the fashionable nature of being the spacefarer, thinking in the same way as how a person makes their taxi their own space, as it were. You know, you've got your your sort of your fluffy dice or your, your other bits and pieces. Not really as a car, because we don't think of spaceships as cars. We think of spaceships as yachts, certainly the conceptual information that David Braben has, has laid down. So we kind of see it that way. But certainly the religion element in the Federation is going to be just as um, as diverse. Okay. Yeah. This whole thing that they're like America, that kind of, I don't know, that kind of saddens me because, you know, I don't like America. And <laughs> by the sounds of it, they probably, uh, this is just my, obviously. I was going to say, can we just apologise to any American listeners that we do have for Lave Radio? Uh, oh, no. John's views does not represent the corporation of Lave Radio in any way, shape or form. No, I can no, feel sorry. a pair of scissors coming. Yeah, I can feel the scissors, but I, I, if I could qualify it, I would say that I think that the American country is founded on great ideals, but I think that it's kind of lost its way. That's that's exactly, I think, what we're trying to capture. Oh, that's, that's fine. But the, yeah. the Federation is that kind of organisation that is founded on great ideals, but the waters have become very muddy because of the, the capitalist element and because of the different political elements that are, are inside the, uh, the organization itself. And I think that's what makes it interesting, because as a player, you think about the Empire, the Empire has this, this sort of structure and strata of power. In the Federation, you can see a dream, and the idea is to place, but at the moment, it's muddy. The dream is, is a shattered mirror. Can you put the pieces back together? Well, that answered my question. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, well, we'll move on then to the Alliance of Independent Systems. Now, we know that this is uh, a faction that's not as powerful as the Empire or the Federation. It's been likened to uh, the European Union in terms of the fact there's lots of independent states all sort of working towards a common goal. The laws vary from system to system, so always best to check your information before you fly. 
Now, what do people think about the Alliance now? For me, I think the Alliance is one of the more interesting factions because it gives you the you know the most amount of freedom in terms of the cultures that are going to exist within it. It's going to have the biggest diversity of cultures. Yeah, definitely. When I think of it, it's this melting pot of culture. So there can be so many things going on and the very next system over can be so radically different to the one that you've just visited. But I, for some reason, the way it's been described, I see it as a as a a way to make money if you know what i mean because you have either ends of the spectrum you can jump between systems and you can make a profit on things that are illegal so is it going to be pirate safe haven is it going to be what they want um well i kind of looked at it as being sort of more the sort of the wild west alan what do you think the difference between say the alliance of independent systems is compared to those systems and say the outer rim that actually have you know, no link to any faction is there going to be a big difference between the alliance and the true independence well the alliance is based on a set of core principles so you have a, a slight similarity to the federation in that regard but it's much looser there are a certain set of things that to be an alliance member your system has to have agreed to and those are those are sort of chartered but they're not particularly taxing so there are just a small core set of principles as long as your house is in order then you're in the club as it were what that means is that essentially there's no centralized organization in the alliance so or very little centralized organization so you've only got a couple of organizations that run throughout the whole spectrum but what happens instead is you have independent systems within the alliance sort of binding together in different groups within the big group so you have that kind of blocking going on in terms of what's there it does mean as well that there is less potential physical power but it also means in terms of that trade power soft power as it were actually the alliance can be more powerful but only if you could get everybody to agree. So when you're talking about physical power there's no standing army for the alliance how does the military structure work? At this stage, we're working on that, but (laughs) what you can equate is that there is no centralized military structure. So there are different systems who are part of the alliance will have different defense forces, depending on what those systems feel their requirements are. So, yeah, so that is how that's set to work, really. Okay, and going back to the point on religion, the alliance was the one that I thought... It would be the most interesting from a religion point of view because in my head the alliance of independent systems was the one that was most likely to have the you know the bizarre little cults on each of the different systems that you could go in and learn a little bit more about so would you say that was going to be true well it depends really i think we've got to be a little bit careful here in that you've also got independent systems in themselves and which you alluded to in relation to you know ones that are on the yep. frontier and what have you you've got to think that where you talked about this idea of the wild west there are systems in the game who are There is no clear government and those systems will be there and they will be really tough to go into and to trade in and a real risk, a real danger to get into and to get out of. With the fact they have no clear government and they have no clear authority in place, that basically means they can't join the alliance. So you've got to weigh a balance between those two things. I guess if you were thinking of the alliance in it being a frontier... It's not as stratified all the way through the society. So there is still that colonial and frontier enthusiasm to to the people that are there. And certainly we've looked at that in relation to the kind of culture, the common bonds. You know, the self-made man is essentially as a a sort of an alliance idea, which we'll we'll kind of see how that conceptually bears out. And I stress again, I've put some ideas in in the documentation. It will be up to Michael and to David and to everybody else at Frontier and to Andrew 
as to which ones they choose to use and which ones they don't. But I, I certainly think that they are the most diverse of the three factions. Just uh, thinking about it, in terms of things like the, say, the Smuggler's Haven or the Pirate Dens, do you see those as being part of the Alliance systems or do you see those as being part of maybe the truly independent systems? If it was me and I was a pirate and I wanted to hide my booty, I would go to the most dangerous place I could. Or at least making a reputation there so you're trusted and, and you feel safe. Talking about hiding your booty, leaving your booty well behind, we'll go on to the second part of the dev diary, which was the the DDF fiction questions that were posed to Michael. So the Design Decision Forum members got the option, got the opportunity rather of... Uh, writing in some questions that they wanted Michael to answer about the fiction of Elite. So we're just going to quickly run through some of those because they're actually quite quite revealing about some of the different aspects of the fiction and which direction uh, Frontier Development to take in the game. So the first question was from Carsten, and that was the, the question that we were all wondering, which is, what will be the role of Thargoids in Elite Dangerous? And Michael basically answered that Thargoids are the other major powers that humans are aware of in the universe, but that we don't know the full extent of their capabilities. We've been to war with them a few times. We will learn a lot more about the Thargoids in work-in-progress fiction. I'm not sure if that's some of the fiction that the licensed writers are writing or whether or not that's stuff that's actually coming out of Frontier Development. Their role in the current game will be there, but it will actually be expanded in future updates. And the massively big reveal from Michael was the fact that Thargoids are all girls. Not sure if you call them Tharglets in that case. What do people think? Is that what we're expecting for Thargoids? Um, Well, no, not for me. But the one concern I had with the Thargoids was, you know, in original games, they were just this species which, you know, some people said they just occupied witch space or whatever. They they just appeared and then they did what they wanted to do and they disappeared. But now we, we hear that they, um, they've engaged in regular wars. And so now we, they're going to become maybe more a more large part of the narrative of the game. And I'm just wondering how perhaps does their old description this kind of insectoid race how does that gel with the current fiction has anything been changed about them i think there is there's a difficult thing here um to start with to to cover foz's point about where is this information about the thargoids going to come from well foz i think we're scheduling you to interview tj (laughs) and tj's book into the darkness is pretty much is the, the main piece that we know out of the plots for the fiction works that will feature the Thargoids. So I think if you want to put any questions in relation to uh, to their development, then you can you can have a chat with TJ in the uh, the forthcoming interview section that you record with him. So hopefully you'll you'll get some some further insight with that. In terms of the development of them as a species where we looked at last week i kind of said last week with some of the development when you look back at continuity and when you look back at ideas and if we remember with with elite what i said about the the thing of there being lots of races on different planets and that kind of bypassing the idea of first contact uh, between humans and an alien race this is the interesting thing with the thargoids is that we have had contact with them there have been things happen but they are an alien society and the way in which that society interacts with a human society is still yet to to be determined. Some things have happened. Some elements of human society have decided they don't like the Thargoids. And some elements of human society have decided they do quite like the Thargoids. The Thargoids hmm. have very different technology to humans. So there may be 
certain corporations who are interested in that technology and other corporations who have said, well, no, actually, we're not going to deal with anything like that because that's wrong and it could be dangerous to us and so on and so forth. So you, you have quite a lot of opportunity for different sides to be taken in dealing with the Thugwids and themselves. And I think the key word in what Michael said is that they are what we know of that's out there. So just, just, as, a, just as a throwaway question, the answer may be, I don't know. Do you think that there may be one faction over any other that is more willing to perhaps work with the Thargoids? Yeah, I do. I think that you'll find more out about specifically which elements of different factions are more interested in this as time comes out. But certainly there is an intention that the factions all take different positions on them. Just to come back to the point about the image when the other games were written, you know, when Elite was written, when Frontier was written, when Frontier First Encounters was written, I don't think anybody was ever thinking we were coming back to this series all these years later. And I don't think anybody was thinking as well that we were going to look at the detail of, of the, the mythology and the universe and the, the game world as meticulously as we kind of are now. You know, since the end of the Kickstarter, really, we have ransacked every piece of information that has ever been published in relation to those three games and we are continuously refining what will work and what won't work in what we want to do. So I kind of think that the people who were writing those things in the first place, they wouldn't have thought that they would stand the test of time in, in the amount of time that they've, you know, they've held up and the amount of time we're attempting to reuse some of those elements and aspects. So I'm afraid some of those things, they're going to go. They are going to go because the key thing here is that 1.6, 1.7 million pounds was pledged towards a new Elite game. It wasn't necessarily pledged towards a remaking of an old Elite game. We want, wherever possible, to have an acknowledgement of some of those old themes. I'd want some of them to be preserved, and in fact as many of them to be preserved as we possibly can. And that's why we've ransacked all that old fiction. But some things will alter, and I think players should be prepared about that, because it kind of has to for, for the new game to work in terms of what they want to do. Well... Going on to the next question from John P, which was, will Elite Dangerous include any form of artificial intelligence? And what we found out here was uh, a little bit of Elite Dangerous's secret history. Uh, we found out that there have been artificial intelligence made in the past, but they were deemed too dangerous to be allowed and have been banned. It's one of the few causes that will actually unite all three human factions. They will all work against AI threats. And it's also mentioned that it is thought that one or two may have escaped into deep space. Now, my question is, could this be Elite Dangerous's big bad? Interestingly enough, I mean, the thing that occurred to me with this, we've talked before about David Braben being obviously a huge Arthur C. Clarke fan. Is there any kind of Ian, Ian M. Banks influence in any of his reading? Because obviously Ian M. Banks has these big ship mines, these big sort of floating spacecraft that's basically just a giant brain that just sort of travels between the stars and whatever. And, and that, that's quite interesting. You've been watching a lot of Futurama, have you? <laughs> but I, I don't think Alan's about to tell us that um, the Borg have now taken over the Frontier universe or something like that. But the only speculation I had is perhaps will the Thargoids join with the humans in against a common enemy or something? What you have in popular fiction is you've got two very distinct identifications of how AI has been produced in, you know, in films and TV. John's already mentioned the Borg. You've then also got the Matrix. Now, the Borg has this, you know, this sort of central idea of, of the, the one consciousness. 
I'm not saying that Star Trek invented this idea by any stretch of the imagination. And I'm also not decrying any other science fiction authors who have looked at Gaia ideas and technological, you know, one brain ideas in terms of what's there. But you do have those two distinct things represented in TV and film. When The Matrix came out, The Matrix looked at artificial intelligence in a slightly different way and the idea that programs were sentient but separate and could have different agendas just as as much as as people could have different agendas. So they effectively mapped a, a human condition onto something that was alien. It's been done quite a lot in a lot of different science fiction. We want to do something a little bit different and I think Frontier Developments want to do something a little bit different and they want to pitch it in a way so in the game universe it, it operates in a slightly different way to other things. The idea of it being on the, the border excluded, the idea of it being solitary and a real danger leaves an awful lot of room to play with it in, in a multitude of different ways. You might have one robot who's masquerading as a human and living in society, hiding in plain sight. And that becomes the focus of, you know, a year's worth of hunt the hunt the robot, you know, and loads of players start trying to find who the robot is and so on and so forth. So you could create a plot around that. You could create a plot around the idea that there is this technological adversary that gradually is constructing a new society to come back similar to the replicators in Stargate Atlantis. You could have, you know, sort of sentience being achieved amongst programs. The Skynet idea... You know, lots of different possibilities, really. You know, essentially what, what Frontier have done with this particular element is they've just made sure they've kept all their cards. Great stuff. Well, moving on to the final question from Nicholas Van Rien. Your question was, what happened to all those alien life forms that were listed in the original game? And I think the way they've approached this is actually quite clever. So Michael's answer was, alien life is abundant in the Elite Dangerous universe. Sentient life, however, is not. The species listed in Elite were considered to be the dominant species on that planet, but were not sentient. There are only two sentient species that were known of in the Elite universe. Thargoids are one, and there was another sentient species on Achenar, but this was eradicated by the early Imperials. Now, that was sort of glossed over, but I think that's probably one of the most interesting things that came out of the, the dev uh, video, was the fact that the, the early Empire actually eradicated a whole species of sentients. Now, Alan, can you touch on any of that? Yeah, I can. Um, we actually, this was one of the reasons why I chose, and I, you know, I had the option of, of going through the guidebooks and deciding which one I was going to concept right first. And that's the reason I chose the Empire one, because um, I knew that there was this very distinct schism between Akinar and the Federation, and what happened in that, that sort of schism between the two. There's also previous history as well with stuff that happened on Talseti, um, it's all fairly well documented in in some of the Frontier Gazetteer, so you actually have a lot of the the information at the very start of of Frontier Elite Two. But we've we've expanded that, and we've we've looked at the incidents and where there are two or three lines. We've taken those two or three lines, and we've started to create a context around what happened. And one of the things I always like about reading history books, and I I stress this, I'm not incredibly boring. I don't read history books. Like that. <laughs> but one of the things I like when I do read history books is when characters pop out of the text. The Frontier Gazetteer and some of the uh, the other documentation, the Frontier First Encounters journals, are a rich, rich mine of different incidents, but they're not really elaborated on. So what actually we've been doing is stitching a lot of those things together and creating a context. Now, with regards to the death of intelligent aliens, that is part of the original mandate of the Federation. 
because the Federation had a particular mandate towards how it would treat environments in space when when colonists were going to to a planet. There are particular mandates of how they're supposed to deal with the the native ecology. And of course, you know, when you're a colonist and a, an early pioneer on a planet, the first thing you want to think about is your own survival. So a lot of the time, if there's if there's another species there that, that have lived on this planet all the time, and they can help to your survival by eating them, killing them, or um, marginalizing them in some way, then you're going to be tempted to do that. And of course, over vast distances of space, well, what is it? What does it matter if I, I just wipe these guys out? They won't hear for five years. It won't matter. I'll just we'll just get rid of them. And and actually, it fits very well with um, some of the stuff that is being discussed at the moment by NASA, because NASA, when they've sent the, the the Martian landers out, they've talked about the contamination of Earth particles and Earth molecules and and sort of Earth germs and everything else that might affect the instruments of the rovers that are out there. So they've had to clean some of the devices and what have you. Um, in the Martian soil to get rid of this sort of sheen of of earth particles that are there. And I think essentially what this is, is is kind of taking that two or three steps down the road and going, okay, well, what are the things that the challenges that actually were there for colonists? What are the things that they had to overcome? And what decisions did they really have to make about their own survival? Just looking here, I also missed off the the blatant Arthur C. Clarke influence coming through, which is the fact that even though those are the only two sentient lives that we know about, there is the alien artifact floating around in the solar system. Further information currently unknown. Um, obviously, we've probably all been exposed to Arthur C. Clarke's 2001-2010 and the giant rectangular obelisk. Is this a, a quite an overt nod to that, Alan? Um, it's not. It, it's actually it's already documented in the original in the second game. So we have started to create a context around it. There were some ideas already there. Um, in terms of what it was and what it would be. And we've then started to, to sort of take that a bit further to intersperse that into the plot and the story of the, the ongoing universe of, of what we're trying to establish. I can't tell you what that artifact is. I can't tell you how it's going to interact with everything that's there. But what I can tell you is it's been mentioned, and by it being mentioned, it is significant. Uh, just promise me one thing, okay? It's not time travel. It's not a human thing from the future put into the pack. I, I couldn't cope with time travel. No, no, in... Ma- Marty McFly is not going to turn up. <laughs> the artifact is not a DeLorean. Yeah, it's it's not. I, I know you love your mashup, Foz. But I'm afraid <laughs> I was going to say a DeLorean might be quite cool, but <laughs> great Scott. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I'm afraid that it's not going to be a time travel device in the middle of the the universe. No, it, I mean Good. fundamentally. You know, if you think in terms of the game design mechanics, time travel is just impossible for a multiplayer online game. We, we've got a few other ideas. I, I, you know, I, I, I can't entirely rule that idea out because it's not my decision. But I can tell you with 90% certitude it's not a time travel device. Okay, in which case, let's leave that there for the time being. And what we will do is, after this break, we'll come back and we will talk about the current interesting stuff that's going on in the DDF. Attention, attention. Lave station informed Marshall. We interrupt your broadcast to bring you essential system information regarding the planet Lave. Lave radio began broadcasting from Lave station in early 3299. Originally, it was to be based in Ashuria and run by commercial entrepreneur Chris Gavin, but difficulties with transmission across the planet and system meant it was relocated to Lave station. The Lave radio team are 
Lave Station Commander, Alan Stroud, Chief of Operations, John Stapler, Station Entertainment's Manager, Chris Jarvis, and Second Technician Vending Machines, Chris Forster. Okay, guys, so moving into the DDF section of the news. Uh, going to cover two things in DDF this week. Uh, the first one is um, reputation and the how to get to elite status within the game. And the second one is a current poll that's going on at the moment regarding shields and weapons. So starting off with the elite dangerous reputation or reputation in elite dangerous, just to give you uh, an insight, the, the topic is called the, the badder they are, the bigger the reward ratings in elite dangerous. And a big shout out actually goes to the d- developer that uh, works with the DDF, a guy called Sandro Samarco, who uh, who writes all of these proposals and puts them forward and then has the unenviable task of trolling through all the responses and trying to pick out what you know, the interesting comments are. So the introduction to this piece um, from Sandro, an enduring and somewhat defining feature of the Elite series is the pilot combat rating. With Elite Dangerous, we want to investigate ways to improve this from a simple kill count as it used to be. Importantly, we wanted to add meaning beyond simple bragging rights to commanders and access to the odd mission. We think that interesting consequences to commander actions codified by reputations and ratings will help the galaxy feel more dynamic, consistent and exciting. So what we're going to do, guys, is we're going to quickly sort of break it down into the three separate parts, which is the rules of reputation, how the reputation is actually going to be acquired, the different types of reputation... And finally, how one actually becomes elite. We did have a bit of input, sorry, we did have a bit of input on um, what elite is. Because the question was posed by Dave Hughes. Why is there an organisation that ranks every fighter pilot in the galaxy according to a rating based on how many people they have murdered? <laughs> and he posed that point. And this is obviously a response. I mean, he, he wasn't the only person that posed that, that question. Talking about this whole thing, apart from the moral issue, of course, that there's somebody who's engaged in counting up how many murders happen, there's also the logistics issue, that that requires an infrastructure in place for that to happen. They must be organised to be aware of all these kills. Doesn't this feed into the whole um, that Elite is now going to become a membership of a club rather than just a ranking. Now, before we go any further in this, I think it's time we all need to confess on both the original Elite and also the follow-up games, did we all manage to get to Elite? Alan? Deadly. In which game? First one? Yep. John? Yeah, it was Deadly for me in uh, Frontier, and that was it. I, I, As I said, I only tried out the first Elite for a little bit to understand the game and play it. I didn't really <clears> play it for any length of time. I'll, I'll I'll give a little bit of an excuse as well. Um, I spent so no, we're not interested in your excuses. I, I spent so much time in the back end of space looking for generation ships. I was uh, <laughs> avoiding oh, combat. <laughs> what about you, Chris? Yeah, I, th- I don't even remember. I think uh, my rating was probably pretty low. I think a little bit like Alan. I think I was mostly interested in the sort of some of the aspects of the gameplay that didn't revolve around the shooting. Uh, which obviously wasn't represented then. And one of the things that's quite nice here is is how many other paths uh, can lead you to elite, which is which is nice. But we'll get into yeah, that. Yeah, you're sure. all a big bunch of pansies. I have to say, for for my part in this, I managed to get elite in the original game, and for some reason, I never managed to get past deadly in Frontier. But I never managed to get the badges. 
I, I arrived too late to the original Elite game to, uh, to actually get a badge. But going back to the DDF, so the reputation rules. Reputations are going to be numerical values representing the consequences of particular styles of gameplay. Um, they can go up and down based on command actions. And they can be used to um, provide the player with entry into various sort of themed events and content. Reputation levels can affect how a non-player controlled character responds to the commander. And interestingly, uh, in terms of other players knowing what your reputation is, commanders will be able to suffix their name with an entry based on their current reputation levels. So for example, um, each reputation level has a number of suffixes unlocked at certain thresholds. So you can have the silent connection, for example, if you're a smuggler or a various military rank for a mercenary work that you do. Um, or maybe, you know, the pillager if you go down the pirate route. I think that's quite an interesting an interesting way of um, defining people because if you can imagine if you're out flying your Cobra Mark III and you scan down the ship that's coming towards you and you find out, ah, he's just a, a straightforward merchant, you're probably not going to raise shields. Where if you come up against a, a viper who's saying, you know, he... <laughs> His suffix is Blackbeard or something like that that blatantly points him out to be a pirate. You know, you're going to have that certain sort of sphincter twitching moment going on where you know you're probably in for a fight before anybody even starts firing at you. So I think the idea of having reputations being uh, displayed as suffixes in front of your name is actually quite a good one. What do you guys reckon? Okay, I'll, I'll go with that first, the whole thing of reputation. I, I've, I've seen this in MMOs. I'm hoping that it's more valued in Elite Dangerous. But it is great that after you've achieved something, which has taken you know considerable amount of time or effort, that you unlock a title, uh, and then you can then go and use that title uh, so people can actually understand you know how much you've put into the game, I guess. But also, I suppose there's there's some kind of scope there for you to be able to downgrade your title and look a little bit more humble than what you really are, I guess. Are you thinking Q-boats, essentially? Yeah, yeah. Um, but then, sorry, just going back, uh, for me, the biggest bit was this whole idea of reputations can go down as well as up. Um I, I think that's possibly the most important thing that I saw in, in the rules, um, because it just goes to show that you know you can't just coast along. If you have a reputation to uphold, it's not just about doing the positive things. It's it's about not doing the negative things. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly, uh, one of the interesting things I found about this proposal was actually um, how it is that one increases and decreases their reputation. Uh, what they've actually done is they've listed the various different um, roles or career paths that you might want to try and gain reputation in. And I'll just quickly fly through them here. Um, trade, smuggling, piracy, mercenary, bounty hunting, assassination, exploration, espionage, prospecting, factional allegiance, criminal status, and humanitarian. So, uh, for example, your your trade reputation would be increased by selling cargo at a profit, and it would actually lose reputation by losing cargo lost in space or sold at less profit. Um, looking at another one, bounty hunting is quite obvious. Killing ships that have a bounty uh, decreased by attacking, but not actually managing to kill a ship that has a bounty. Espionage increased by performing data acquisition missions and decreased by failing data acquisition missions. When it comes to reputation, that uh, there are definite consequences this time around to your actions. So you can't just take a mission and then think, actually, I just scrapped this mission and uh, take on maybe an escort mission, but uh, 
you know, leave the espionage one behind. It will actually have a knock-on effect to your reputation if you do that. I'm interested in how the reputations translate between factions. Because, um, I mean, obviously, if you look at it historically, like Drake is considered a great British sort of naval war hero. Uh, but as far as the Spanish were concerned, the guy was little more than a pirate. So I'd be interested to see how, the, particularly the faction allegiance stuff, whether someone who's kind of a an elite espionage hero maybe in the Federation might just be considered a pirate or a mercenary in the independence. With with that it kind of that, that creates a living, breathing society, doesn't it really? You know, you end up with with reputations, not just reputations in terms of codified ideas, but reputations of you know, of people's play and of people's actions causing celebrity status or notorious status in terms of what's there. Well what this this kind of covers is the way in which a computer game can be an awful lot more advanced than its predecessors. You know, at the end of the day, you had a game that essentially was trying to give you a, a bean counting structure to, you know, to get to a something that represented or, or looked like a, you know, a sort of a, an achievement, a, a competition cup. Congratulations, you are elite. You know, and we, we all remember when you got right on commander come up. Yeah, up on the screen. biggest thing ever. If we had the same system that we'd had in the previous games, then it would be very impersonal. It would be very bland because that was a you know a system of its time, and it wouldn't reflect and rate into the way in which the you know the campaign and the story works. This is great. This gives you oh, there's a secret sinister organization that I'm going to join. Is there a secret handshake? <laughs> um. Just to touch back on what John said about the ups and the downs, this is quite clearly, it's an attempt by the people who are running a game and setting up the sandbox to structure the actions of the people and behaviours of the people who are inside it. And, you know, most games do it. It's quite clever. You're kind of losing yourself an opportunity if there's no stick. If it's all carrot and there's no stick then you lose an opportunity to encourage more play. Because I, I, even though it's disappointing if you get into a situation where you, know, you gain reputation and then you go into another situation where you lose it, it's still rewarding play. And certainly when you turn to these categories and you look at them, some of them are going to be contradictory. So if I go into a situation where I've got a boatload of cargo and actually one of my bounty hunting targets turns up and I've got to dump my cargo to, to manage to shoot down the guy because otherwise I'm not going to catch him or whatever, then I'm going to lose and I'm going to gain, which I think is really interesting. Just as an example of that... Um, I thought piracy was a standout one because, in one sense, um, you know, piracy is about selling cargo obtained through, you know, declaration of piracy, as per um, what I'm reading here. But piracy reputation is decreased by destroying ships which piracy has been declared against. Now, you'd think they just declare piracy against all ships, but what they're trying to say there is that even pirates um, have standards even pirates have a code of honor so i'm guessing that they shouldn't shoot down humanitarian ships or medical ships or something like that and i just wanted to pick up on the fact that humanity is is one of the the metrics or one of the potential things that you could be measured on and just going back to what some of the discussions on the forums people were discussing what would happen if you picked up slaves as floating (laughs) debris or as maybe stolen goods and what should you do with your slaves and I'm just wondering if perhaps maybe freeing slaves would help you in your humanity course. Humanity. Yeah. 
Um, but interestingly, we've, we've gone through and said, you know, all these things about reputation going up and down. When it comes to actually becoming elite, elite is no longer a combat rating. It is literally access to the mysterious organization bearing the same name. Being a member of the elite federation confers many privileges, but access to the organization is extremely difficult. One must show extraordinary promise in one or more areas to be deemed a potential candidate. Now, those areas are wealth, profit over accumulated net worth, though both values are actually taken into consideration, combat, effectiveness over number of kills, knowledge, which is the acquisition of data from sources, and influence, which is high faction, criminal, or humanity relationships. All of those will be worked out internally by values. They are visible to the player as a rating, much like an expanded version of the previous game's combat rating. They are hidden from the public uh, and those values never actually decrease. So in the same time as the original games, you are always trying to make your way towards Elite. Everything that you do in Elite Dangerous will in some way go towards becoming uh, Elite. Again, I like the fact that there's, a, there's an option to get into this kind of Elite status through other means, being a particularly high-influence data thief for you know, one or other faction, um, and that being the thing that you're kind of an Elite in. I think, that's, I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I think as well, they've got to be very careful here in that you can't really have, where well, we've talked in the other categories about the, the reputation going up and down, I don't think you could have the reputation decreasing because becoming elite is so embedded and integral to this game that if you took players and then went off and did something and then it said, no, actually, now you're mostly harmless... <laughs> you would be gutted. So I just don't think they could, you know, they could do that. I think by making it more complex, that's really cool. You know, that that creates lots of variation of gameplay. But I don't think you could take away from people. So I think this is a good idea. It'd be like kind of taking away XP from people in, in an MMO. You know, they've, they they feel that they've earned it and that they would feel quite robbed. They would say arbitrarily taking it off them. That people look at XP as purely a, um, a kind of a metric of how long you've been playing a game, and I guess that's that's how some people view Elite. Okay, so that's uh, that pretty much sums up the proposal. Now, one thing we're going to do this week, which we haven't done in previous weeks, uh, is just have a little bit. Uh, I mean, people have actually asked in the forums and the feedback what then happens within the DDF. But these are some of the proposals that have been put forward from the DDF. So reputation types. Um, the DDF suggested that escort be added as a reputation type and taxi stroke carrier should also be added as a reputation type. So they should be careers within their own rights. Did they define escort at all? No, absolutely <laughs> not. Mate. And neither are we going to in this without getting so an explicit I, rating. I, I think, our, I think our, our entertainment manager would probably want some input on define escort. <laughs> not on my corner. <laughs> Um, Ratings-wise, ratings, they uh, were suggested, could also be affected by loyalty and reliability. People would, uh, were quite keen on seeing a kill count rating be included so that people could actually see it. Ratings should factor in how well you completed your task, not just the outcome. So, yeah, maybe then a mission just having sort of a straight A and B outcome. There should maybe be side missions or other objectives. And also that's taken into consideration in the rating. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you say about reliability, because that, that's an interesting metric itself, because it could be anything from, you know, if you're just a, a regular person who carries a few passengers or delivers goods by a certain time, reliability is important, um, and that could open different doors for you. But then you could also have the 
reliability stroke trustworthy um, because surely even pirates need to be trustworthy to a certain extent if they need to offload their goods um, so it'd be interesting to see if those things are captured yeah absolutely an alternative suggestion here is that uh, an invitation to the elite federation provides you with an actual mission chain that needs to be completed in order to gain entry a reputation a reputation is primarily or solely affected by mission success or failures and if reputation is regional, then perhaps criminal ratings should also be regional as well. Uh, and there was a suggestion that there should also be a player faction reputation system. Sounds good to me. Uh, yeah, definitely. I think, you know, it, we've, we've already said this. Any, anything that gives more options to players is good. Anything that encourages players to play with players is good. And also with what you have here in terms of all of the suggestions, just looking holistically at, uh, at what's what's being done here, but you can already see through this process that the the people who've backed this Kickstarter and the people who've given input on these forums are getting ideas into this game. And that's an incredible thing. And that yeah, absolutely that agree. will make this game so much better because those players who want to play it are embracing the idea of, of contributing and the people who are making it are embracing the idea of, of incorporating their ideas. Even though... It's hard and it's tough, you know, when you've got to read through everything and you've got to go through everything and you've got to, and you might have, you know, and I can equate this in, in the fiction, you might have your own idea how something's going to be. And if somebody else comes in and has a better idea than you, if you've already written it, sometimes some people could look at that and go, oh, but, 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 you know, you have to embrace the idea absolutely that the, the cooperation is going to make this thing greater than the sum of its parts. And I think I think certainly the, the DDF is now starting to settle into that mode. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a brilliant segue in terms of uh, contributions because we'll move straight on to the DDF polls. And this one is the Shields and Weapons poll, uh, dated on 3rd of March. Okay, so the Shields and Weapon poll, obviously you've got three layers of damage. Shields, then once you're through the shields, you go to the hull. Once you get through the hull, you get into the actual ship systems and death. And the poll was basically to see the player's gut feel as to what type of damage the laser, the kinetic, and the kinetic explosives actually deal to a ship. So looking at the lasers, the overwhelming majority decided that lasers are actually effective at bringing down shields, they are average at damaging the hull, and they are effective at penetrating the hull to damage the ship modules. When it comes to kinetic, overwhelmingly the thoughts were that they were weak at bringing down shields, uh, they are effective at damaging the hull, and they are effective at penetrating the hull and damaging ship modules. And with kinetic explosive, they are effective at damaging the hull most. Uh, they are effective at penetrating the hull to damage ship modules, but are not very effective at damaging shields. Now, does everybody agree with that? Is that where everybody else's gut feel is? I think mostly. I think there's a there's an extra thing in here that I think almost slightly misses a trick. Because one of the other things that's that's been voted quite well is is the option of having kinetic bullets there's an option for them to be completely deflected by shields and i think it's almost a bit of a shame in the sense that i think in to have a system whereby you have to have lasers to take out shields and then you have to have kinetic weapons to take out armor you almost forcing everybody to have both kinds of weapons and i think when we've talked about this you know previously i've said that one of the things i'd like to see is is to be able to say me personally I like using kinetic weapons and maybe somebody else likes using laser weapons and maybe between the two of you, you're like a really killer team. Um, but I think to actually have this thing in here where you say there's a chance that kinetic weapons might not even work at all 
well, there's a chance they won't work until the shields have already been depleted by lasers, I think is, is effectively forcing all combat to play out the same way. Well, I'm not uh, sure that they're saying that. I think they're just saying that some are more effective than others. I, I think that one type of weapon will eventually kill you know, the opponent. But you said it yourself, it alludes to this idea that perhaps, you know, if you had more than one player who were attacking, they would have a better chance of taking down the enemy before they managed to, say, um, do a hyper jump or something like that. I, I know what you mean, but you just got to be careful, because if you just start saying things like, well, it's not fair that, that lasers are better than bullets at this, you know, you can't just balance it so much that everything's the same, otherwise you don't have a game anymore, you just have something that's quite boring. Alan, what do you reckon, mate? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm asking I, you because you're staying very quiet on all of yeah, this. Yeah, I, this is this is kind of where I get a little bit. In terms of these mechanics, I, I, I just it made me think a little bit of Wing Commander and the mass driver and the and the, the laser system and the neutrinos. You had three options as long as there were three options and not forty options. And actually, I was discussing this with somebody else. As long as there are options that I can look at and go, great, I've earned a thousand credits. I can buy one of those. And that feels like an achievement to me. I don't care. Um, <laughs> as long as that element's there. And as long as when I get into a fight, I can kind of think, well, I've got to plan my tactics fairly carefully about what my strengths are and what their strengths are. Other than that, if it encourages different types of flight, and I mean, Chris alluded to this by saying that, you know, all combat would eventually would degenerate into something that is always the same. You know, as long as the combat remains varied and interesting then great. I don't mind what the options are. As long as I don't have to spreadsheet them, that'll be nice. I can't be doing with, with spreadsheeting what, what all my different weapons do. So if anybody's listening that plans to encounter me in space, you will probably find that I've got something fairly bulk standard um, and I haven't bothered to, to work out what the best thing is to, to shoot them down with. Uh, so yeah, you know, as, as far as I'm concerned, as long as the combat is varied and as long as there is choices, not too many choices, as long as the choices feel like you're achieving something, then I'm happy. You're not going to min-max your craft then? Well, no, I, I kind of can't see that being something that I do really because I don't think I'm that statistically minded <laughs> to go through and do it. I was just a bit worried that when you said, oh, you know, I, I'm not really too bothered about weapons, I thought, well, that's it. You know, the only place you'll find Alan is in a bar on a space station somewhere and he'll never leave. He'll just no, be there. I, I think second technician Forrester is the one that sits at the bar. I'm actually, I'm, I'm more interested in maneuverability and, and and kind of other other things like that in terms of the the flight mechanic because i think that that's that's certainly going to be more interesting in terms of how the the combat evolves great stuff okay well that'll do it for the news and development news after this we'll come back and do the community corner attention attention lave station in Marshall. we interrupt your broadcast to bring you essential system information regarding the planet lave one of the oldest colonies of the sector, Colonial Deep Space Cruisers Herschel and Oberon reached the system designated L-453 in 2412. The star system was at that time, unique, a single super-Earth-type planet in orbit within the exact habitable zone of a single orange dwarf star. No other planets or sizable bodies existed in the system. The planet's rotation took just over 20 standard hours, and the gravity was close enough to 1G for the difference to be unnoticed. Lave is a trading center for this region of unusual systems. Through some unexplained quirk of nature, all these systems have just one inhabited world orbiting a single star. 
Blade was most famous for its vast rainforests and the Larvian tree grub. Much of the rainforest has now been cut down, and the famous tree grub is now extinct. Leaf Station is the galaxy's oldest serving Coriolis. It was commissioned in 2752. Excellent, and we're back. Okay, so for the community corner section, um, what we're going to touch on first is, Alan, is there anything going on currently in the writer's forum that we need to be aware of? Currently, we're, we're still sort of structuring out things, and, and people are going through their proposals, really. Um, what, what is important here is that the process of, of doing any of the fiction works is you have to get your proposal of what the story is going to be through to, to Frontier Developments. And obviously they then look through the proposal in detail and give you feedback on what bits are going to work and what bits aren't going to work. So each writer is essentially going through that proposal process and sort of mapping out how their story is. Some of those go through fairly easily. Some of them don't. What I can say is that through that process, it's pretty meticulous. The, the sign-off is between Michael, David Braben... Andrew and anybody else that you know that they kind of bring in to look at it and they are meticulous about making sure that the concepts and the ideas fit together in terms of what they're doing it it, it can be quite a disheartening thing to get your proposal rejected mine is currently at the stage of being rejected on two grounds to be fair you know the feedback I got was was very good because it was like oh well actually you're only being rejected on two terms okay brilliant so one of them is very easy to fix, and the second one is going to take a little bit more thought. But to be honest, I haven't had a lot of time to look at it. It was, you know, it was two, three weeks ago that um, that I got the email back. So I'm probably going to look at that over the weekend. Some of the other writers, they're straight through. They're they're on their way now. Um, certainly, with your interview with Drew last week, Drew now he's often writing and he's he's doing his stuff. So you know, some of that process is is done. Some of it is in the middle. Some people haven't shown up yet. I was going to ask this because obviously Michael Ooh. suggested that you know there's up to 30 different fiction works in the pipeline and the Writers Forum has been open for a while yet. Are we, have we got any missing in action people? Yes, we do. Commander Boz, wherever you are, please come and join us in the Writers Forum. Lave station to Commander Boz, please come and join us in the Writers Forum. I think I can safely say, I mean, I'm sure Chad... In terms of you know his other commitments and everything else, I'm sure he's very aware of, of the circumstances that that his book is under, and I'm sure you know he wants to to you know, to write the best possible piece that he can. It's it's obviously a little worrying not to not to have him there, and you know I'm sure there are a couple of other people as well that haven't joined us yet. It's really important. There is so much information in there that you kind of need to soak up. You need time to you know to read and to to think about and to then to be able to write with it in your mind. I think that's important, and if you're not there, that process, the time shrinks. And, of course, the, the people at Frontier who you know, are approving all of this, their time's pretty finite too. You know, they've got to work on all the different aspects of the game. Certainly with David Braben, you, he's got to work on everything. So trying to get in Wilder's time available is always the best time to do that. With regards to, you know, to Michael's time, Michael's got to write a book. He's devoting all his time to, you know, to making sure that everybody else is, is sort of sorted and started. Eventually, he's going to have to get into you know to doing the the writing for the piece that he's doing as well. So we kind of need to get these proposals you know sort of worked through as quickly as possible. And you know, I'm having said that you know, it's been a couple of weeks since I last looked at mine. I need to get on with that, get that cracking, get it moving. Certainly, with other other writers, if your proposal's not in, you really need to get on with it. So those thirty projects last week when we talked about it, it was fifteen. Is that breaking down to the individual writers for the short story compilations? Yes, it is. Yeah, that okay. breaks that breaks down everything. 
in terms of actual published works, you're still looking around 15 or so. Um, but in terms of all the components of those published works, you've got at least 12 people in, in Tales of the Frontier. And, you know, and then there are others uh, sort of associated with different bits. You know, some of the complicated ones, for example, you know, Elite Encounters, that requires a completely different method of sign-off. Because obviously what Dave wants to put over is a, a source book for a, quite a wide section of the universe. So, you know, that's going to require quite a lot of different management as things go. Some of the different approaches people have made. Elite Chronicles has a, a crowdsourcing method of writing. That's going to be challenging to try and make sure that that fits in with the rest of the canon. Brilliant stuff. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to cut straight to Ian Phillips, who sent us in a listener memory of how he got involved in the Elite franchise. Hello, this is Commander Reichdar. I'm known on the forums as Ian Phillips, which is actually my name. I'm from Bristol originally, you'll probably hear that, but I live in the north of Holland now. Now, my first Elite experience was, I was home from work, ill, uh, I had flu, and after a few days, I fell out of bed and wondered just what the hell I could do to occupy myself when I remembered that I'd bought this game, Elite. So I found my portable TV, my tape recorder, Spectrum, loaded the program, squinted through the lens lock, and then I crashed. And I crashed again. And then I did a couple of training runs and crashed again. And discovered that I hadn't saved my position and I'd start again. Anyway, 12 hours later, I crawled back into my bed, aching back, cramped legs, flew and went to sleep then i woke up the next morning and did it all again so that was the first time now last year when i was told about the kickstarter i pledged within five minutes and this year i went back to work and i'm still recovering from my christmas about the flu kind of theme here and watched the surge on kickstarter now i signed up for this forum straight away and I've had a great time there so far, so um, I'm getting involved, and we'll be doing some proofreading for the fiction, which is, should be fun. So that'll keep me busy for the rest of the year, and when all that's done, I hope to meet you on the deepest ranges of space. That's Commander Reichdar signing off. Okay, going into our final section of the podcast, the feedback section. We've had some feedback in from a guy whose name's actually unpronounceable from the forum, so let's just call him Andre. He's asked, could we have maybe a little bit more music next time? Perhaps we could hear some of Alan's tunes, or Ian Bell's mixes, or even a taste of elite rock opera written by Aidan Bell. Uh, well, certainly more music in the podcast is a feature that we've been asked for on a number of occasions, and after the newsletter went out, we were actually approached by a band called Two Quiet Sons, who are massive fans of Elite, and they've kindly offered us some of their uh, music from their latest album, Kepler Mission, which we'll be playing out at the end of this show. Uh, another piece of feedback comes in from Koresh from the forum. He says, hey guys, my sis wants you to make a fake weather report for the planet Lave. That's down to you, Alan. Is that possible? Have you got any connections on the surface? Attention, attention. Lave station in Marshall. We interrupt your broadcast to bring you essential system information regarding the planet Lave. Form feedback from Karash. Hey guys, my sis wants you to do fake weather reports of what the forecast is like for late next week. Answer. Planet-wide weather data is difficult to collate. However, we have enclosed the forecast for Ashoria over the coming week. Tomorrow morning will be cloudy, with a chance of rain. Temperatures range from 12 to 17 degrees Celsius, or 285 to 290 Kelvin. Citizens are reminded to wear filter devices where possible to minimize exposure. The afternoon will turn colder but visor recommendations remain in place. 
rain is expected this evening with elevated levels of hydrogen. Fantastic. Okay. Also to mention, we've updated the website over at laveradio.com. If you want to go there and see the changes, you can obviously subscribe to the RSS feed. We're now available on iTunes. And if neither of those options are for you, then there's also an option to join our mailing list and we will automatically notify you when new episodes go out. iTunes reviews have been coming in thick and fast. So thank you for all of those that have been reviewing us on iTunes. It definitely helps with our visibility. And a big thank you to Ashley from Frontier Developments for mentioning us in the newsletters. Uh, I'm very pleased to say that we've got John actually got some decent hosting for Lave Radio because after the newsletter went out, we were inundated with new visitors to the site and lots of downloads for the podcast. So to play us out, we've got Sphere World by Two Quiet Sons.
yesterday I'd forgotten that I'd asked people from the theatre to um, get in contact with me if they could record some sketches. And I got a text from a friend and I'd forgotten all about it. It says, just read your FB message. I'm in a hotel in London and bored. So lend a hand if you wish. I, I read this text message and I was like, why is she saying, is this meant for me? I think she might have meant <laughs> Um, I would just close with that. I would just close with that one. I would just say with Karash, where he says, hey guys, my sis wants these weather reports. Ask him, is your sister hot? <laughs> <laughs> if she's if she's nine... <laughs> oh, okay, I take that back. I, no, no, don't do that. That's highly... That's...